Our scripture today is John 2, 1 through 12. It's the lengthy one, so bear with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, does, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled, up, they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. With, or when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, or called, yeah, called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This the first signs the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went to Capernaum and, or with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I was just thinking one of the reasons we have uh, Kevin and Mary come up and and pray for them and pray pray with them, and I was just thinking, you know, Kevin is a pilot for JetBlue. They live in Minneapolis, have felt called to be here, and are just like, man, what does that look like to be here and to be a pilot for JetBlue? And then on the stage at the same time is Brandon, our bass player, who lives in Pennsylvania and has felt called to be here and be a part of the church as well. Um, and some mention that because not to highlight them as much, I mean, rightfully so, to pray for them, come around them as they're seeking to sell houses and stuff and move back to areas, to the area that they grew up in, but also mention that to recognize how God is calling all of us. And you might not have to try and figure out how you can do your job from where you, from from here, because you're already used to that, Um, but calling each of us in a way of like, Lord, what does it look like to walk out what you're calling me to be as, as not like an attender at this church, and how Kevin brought that out, but to actually be a part of the body and an indispensable part of the body that, uh, that our body is not complete at this season until you are really stepping into your calling as well. And so, um, so I just hope that's encouraging to all of us, even as, as Kevin and Mary and Brandon, and as we keep praying and seeing how the Lord leads, that to, to then start feeling how, how we are being called into that too. And um, Tanner, who gave announcements, preached last week, if you're here, I'm so glad for that. Patty and I were in Chicago, and I, I thought I was able to share why we're in Chicago with some people, but not with everybody. And so, so we don't share this all the time, but we're a part of, an, of a network that's called the Acts 29 Network. Uh, so there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, so the, kind of the idea is like, like, what would it look like to keep writing the book of Acts, and what, what would that look like? And Acts 29 is not a denomination. It, it's actually just a network of like-minded churches across the world, network of like-minded churches. And one of the distinctives to the network is that we all agree to be gospel-centered, is, is a big distinctive, and it might seem odd, but it's unfortunately true that 
if you just like point a church this way and you just kind of set the crews and take the hands off the wheel, that a church will drift to being not about Jesus. Like if you aren't intentionally correcting a church to be centered on the things of Jesus, that a church will start drifting to areas like trying really hard to be good moral people. Do I have anything against good moral people? No. <laughs> like, like uh, it's good to be a, a moral person and to be good. I'm not against that, but I'm, I'm passionately against people thinking that's good admission to heaven. And we should all be passionately against that because I think that's a strategy born in the pit of hell, to be super frank. If morality was sufficient, then Jesus could have just stayed in heaven and told us to be good moral people and to try harder. We need his righteousness, his death on our behalf, his resurrected life that gives us an imperishable life. He takes our sin and he gives us life. And our intention is for every aspect of our church, from kids' church to the well to worship to even how we do announcements, to be centered on the good news of Jesus and of what Jesus is doing as he's on the move in our community. So in the Acts 29 network, if you're a church in Iowa, India, Indonesia, you will know, like, okay, I know one of the central things is that this is a church fighting to be centered on Jesus. And, um, and then another big distinctive in this network is church planting. So we in no way are against established churches. Not against established churches at all. We have an incredible relationship with Collins Christian Church and, and do student ministry together with them every week. Pray for each other, praying for David Schantz and his recovery and, and the Lord has knit us Together, we're not against established churches. We do believe that the world needs thousands of healthy churches planted to reach people who are not currently being reached. And so most Acts 29 churches will give at least 10%. So if $100 is given, $10 is leaving the church to help start healthy churches. And so that's a commitment of the Acts 29 network is doing that. And so if you're wanting to plant a church in the Acts 29 network, first you have to fill out an application that is about 150 pages. So it's pretty intense and it's very um, intrusive into your life. Um, it kind of, every stone is turned over um, to because sometimes people plant churches just to try and and fix daddy issues or all, all sorts of reasons that maybe aren't Jesus actually calling a church into existence. So, um, so if you wanted to plant through the Acts 29 network, fill out an application that's about 150 pages. It took me months to fill out the Acts 29 application about three years ago. Um, and then what happens is you come together and for three days you're being assessed by about 10 other people who, who are all part of Church, church leadership and church planting, and you're basically spending three days kind of coming together, praying like crazy, and saying, Lord, is this what you're calling this to be? Are you calling this church into existence with these 
people leading the church. And, and so Patty and I had the opportunity to spend three days in Chicago along with these 10 people assessing four couples towards church planting. And a, a couple who were feeling called to plant in Dayton, Ohio, feeling called to plant in St. Cloud, Minnesota, feeling called to plant in Northern Illinois, and feeling called to plant in Iowa City. And uh, so, man, it was good to be there. And I just encourage you to pray that, the, that Jesus is the one who builds and plants churches and for that to be super clear um, because, um, man, he's the only one that sees the future. He's the one that's leading the charge. And so, so it was good to be there, but it's incredible to be here. Um, like, I'm not here because I'm paid to be here. Like, I'm, I'm here because there's nowhere else in the world I truly want to be, um, but to be, be where God has called us to be uh, together. And, uh, and there, I would have never, ever, ever looked at church that way before. Uh, when I was growing up, church was this, like, hour that you endure. Like, it's like, you know, it's kind of like running a marathon. It's like, this is going to be terrible but maybe it'll be good at the end. <laughs> like maybe when it's all over, I'll be happy. And that's kind of how I viewed church when I was growing up. It was like terrible, and it wasn't because of the church I was a part of. It was totally to do with what was happening in my heart. Uh, but I just, all of my idea of church was this is a painful thing to endure, and it'll be really good as we leave, and we'll feel really good about ourselves. And man, uh, after coming to Jesus and, and giving my life to him, the Lord started just retraining me of what is happening here. And the, this is like the gathering of the island of misfit toys <laughs> in some ways. Like when, when we come together, it is people coming together who are being called by Jesus, being transformed by him, having things happen in our lives that we never imagined would happen, and walking in the pain of things happening that we would have never want to see happen, but a people that have been changed where he transforms saints or transforms sinners to he actually uses the word saints to describe us who have given our lives to Jesus, had our sin forgiven. We gave him our life and he gave us his life. And so a gathering like this is those of us who are on mission with him throughout the week and then we come together to lift each other up, to lift him up, to sharpen each other, to pray for each other. And then there are people here, I believe, too, who God is drawing to himself. And you might be like, I don't know why I'm here, but I just kind of get in my car and drive here. And I walk in the door, and something happens in me, and I'm not sure why I'm here. And I spent several years like that, um, and, and all of a sudden was like, oh, Jesus, you're calling me to yourself. And so, man, when we gather like this, this is like we have been on a mission of love in our community, and now we're coming together kind of in headquarters kind of to, to come around and to come around the word of God together. And so we have preached, I think, six sermons so far in the book of John. This is our second sermon, or our seventh sermon, and we're finally arriving at the shores of chapter two. <laughs> so, so we're at chapter two now in the book of John and there's been so much rich treasures in chapter one, and there are, chapter two does not disappoint. And let's start with verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, northern Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also, verse two, was invited to the wedding with his disciples. He doesn't crash the party. He was actually invited and the disciples were invited. Verse three, 
when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So this is going to be, uh, as Rebecca read the whole section, this is going to be Jesus' first miracle. And because we've already seen verse 11, what we know is this is a sign. What we are going to read is a sign. It's like a giant billboard. It's not just like, oh, this is cool that he did this little parlor trick. This is a sign. There's a lot more that is happening there. And so it's not just his first miracle, it's his first sign. So we're meant to have this point us towards a lot more than surface level stuff. And it's crazy that this first sign happens at a wedding. Because remember, Jesus is really here. Jesus is really on planet Earth for a wedding. So it's crazy that he goes to a wedding and his purpose is really that he's going to give his life for his bride. That a people purchased for God. So for this first sign to happen at a wedding is so appropriate. And if you're like, Tim, I think you're stretching the metaphor here. Realize like one of the first things that happens in heaven when we're all together is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Wedding reception is one of the first things that happens when the entire church comes together. So for this sign to happen at a wedding, it's kind of pointing to this reality that invitations for the wedding feast of the Lamb are going to be starting to be sent out through this moment. Wine has run out. Contrary to most Baptist wedding receptions, I joke here because I love, but contrary to most Baptist wedding receptions, people in Jesus' day drank wine, at, uh, and it was a big part of the ceremony, and it was meant to, one of the reasons that people were drinking wine was it was meant to thank God. You might not put these, but it's meant to thank God for all that he had promised in leading people into the promised land. Remember, it was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And if you remember in the time of the Old Testament, Moses and then, then Joshua, that when the spies went to spy out the promised land, one of the huge things that they carried on poles were these giant grapes, like these bundles of grapes or whatever you call them. But, but just to prove, like, look how lush the promised land that God has given us is. And, and so here, like, what we are seeing is that, that when they are drinking wine at a wedding feast, part of what they're saying is, God, you've been so extravagant towards us. You have given us way more than just water. Like, you've given us uh, all of this. And so for the wine to run out is not just like, the people who put the order in to like misjudge the numbers, but it was actually like they're misrepresenting God because God is way more lavish than that. Like you'd never run out of the lavishness of God. So it would actually bring a lot of shame to that family, not just because people are like, hey, 
I wanted to drink a lot of wine tonight, but I was like, hey, you're not representing the type of God that we have where, where he actually, um, so even for communion today, I was like, fill the cups to the top. <laughs> like, this is what we're talking about here. Like, this is the type of God that we have. He's, he's lavish. And so, so, so Jesus' mother is very concerned for this family because of their, they weren't, this wasn't purposeful, but because of the shame that they were having, not just in not feeding their guests, but in also not representing the lavishness of their God. And so, uh, so in this conversation, it seems like Jesus is harsh to his mom. The way he refers to her, though, and I think this is really important, the exact phrasing that he uses is to, to say woman to Mary is the same phrasing when he's on the cross and he tells John, like, would you like, consider my mom your mom when I'm gone? And would you love her and serve her? And so, so I think that this is actually like a, a very tender way that Jesus is speaking to Mary. And it, it, I think, overshadows some maybe like ways that they had talked in the past. And it seems here that Jesus will not do any miracles just for the sake of the miracle. When he is going to do something that breaks every supernatural or every natural law, fully supernatural, it will always be for a sign pointing us to what he's about and pointing us to his mission. Mary's response here shows that Jesus isn't shooting her down. Like Mary isn't rebutting, she isn't like coming back to him, she isn't saying, hey, that hurt my feelings. Mary's, you can tell the way that she responded by five saying, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She's expecting him to, to, to start, to start showing people things that have never been seen before. And this is how it's played out in verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, don't miss that. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each were holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And I love this. And they filled them up to the brim. Verse eight. And he said to them, now draw out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So they've run out of wine. What does Jesus do? He points to these large stone water jars. Each of them could hold, filled to the brim, 30 gallons. So I did a little bit of math. One gallon of water weighs 8.33 pounds. So if all six jars are full of water, we're talking 1,500 pounds of water that have just been filled up. Why are these jars here? Why do you have these jars here? Because look, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So what these jars would do is they would hold water that were gonna be used for ceremonial washing. So this is crazy. God's people throughout the Old Testament, they were taught and they knew that their sins had to be washed away. There are things in Israel that you can even go to today that are called mikvahotes, and they're basically like pools that people would just go in and just like totally be submerged in this water. And the idea is that ceremonially they would wash the outside hoping and realizing like, God, would you wash the inside? 
So I'm taking this 180 gallons of water to this party thinking, hey, we need to get everybody clean so that we can basically worship together at this wedding reception. And we need to wash the outside. And so at a wedding feast, remember this is a sign, at a wedding feast, in order to not bring shame to people, God takes the only way people would have been able to wash their sin away and tells people, fill it to the top. Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, the MC for the evening. They probably were dumbstruck, like, hey, we need wine, not water, you know, all that stuff. But it says, like, they, they took it to the master of the feast. So they took it, like they did. They did what he told them to do. And look what happens in verse nine. When the master of the feast tasted the water that's now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we have the 1,500 pounds of the best wine. Uh, I think most wine bottles are 750 milliliters. And so doing some quick math, this is 600 bottles of wine. And he has made 600 bottles of the most amazing wine. And many of you know my brother, Will, and this is what he does for a living is make wine in northwestern Iowa. He's won some Sonoma County awards for some of his wine. And I've talked to him about this miracle. And he's told me, it is impossible, impossible to instantaneously make bad wine. He says it takes even longer to make good wine it's a long process. It cannot be microwaved. And Jesus takes 180 gallons of water that are meant to clean the outside of a person. In order to remove their shame, he instantly is able to bring great joy and honor to family and bring people together in celebration, making incredible water that would pour on the outside but then turning it into incredible wine to be drank and to satisfy a community. Uh, I think a huge point here is God wants to be found. His sign is clear, and don't miss it. He, does, he doesn't want us to say, I once was lost and stayed lost, but he wants us to say, I once was lost, and now I'm found. Verse 11 is gigantic. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I think the sign is clear here. The way to be washed has been revolutionized. How he said, my time has not yet come. And now it's saying, this is the dawn of a new age. The, the way that to God, the way to get to God has moved. It's moved from being washed on the outside to being transformed, from outside washing to drinking, from water to wine, from a ceremonial cleaning to Jesus' blood. As he even says, hey, this is my blood given for you. Drink as often as you do. He's able to turn water into wine, and it's something that no one can do, and he does it effortlessly. 
You don't even see him, like, you don't even see the miracle here in the text. It's, not, it's like so effortless that it wasn't like, you know, he's dripping in sweat because of the power that must come out of him to, like, make this happen. It's like, no, you just, it just happens, and he doesn't even, like, break a sweat. It's because of how powerful he is, and that's why he's saying this sign is showing us his glory. It's manifesting his glory. It's letting people say, he is way more powerful than I ever considered. And I think that's why it's like, well, the disciples believed in him before, right? Not in this way. <laughs> There's a whole new level of recognizing how powerful, how transformative he is. This is a sign to show you his glory, his power, not just to make great wine, but to make a great way to God. His disciples didn't go to bed that night thinking, man, that wine was amazing. Oh, gosh. I mean, can we get him to do this every night? This would be incredible. We could sell it and all this stuff, like, right? You don't see their response like that. It says his disciples believed in him. He's changing everything. That wine was amazing, but Jesus is amazing He's not abolishing the law of the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it in his power for us. He's freeing us to be able to raise a toast to him, to be as transformed as that water was that day. His ability to transform water to wine is just a glimpse of his transforming us from the inside out. And man, would each of us believe would each of us encounter him in a way that we believe? Would each of us be transformed? Would each of us draw near to him? Would we let heaven break into earth a bit this morning? Would we come to his table, take his life, take his life that's lived in our place by taking the bread at the table? Would we then drink the wine that he's provided? Would we drink together? As we drink, would we not be people thinking about the wine but would we let his extravagant gift just fill us with passion? His blood change us as it was given to not wash us on the outside, but to change us so much from the inside out that we would be, we'd be said that we've been born again. That's how radical his life is when we say, I am yours. And for some, it'll be the first time today that you say, hey, I'm giving my life to you Change me in that way. As radically as you change water into wine, would you change me from the way you see me now to where you look at me, you see Jesus and all that he has done for me. And for those of us who walked in as followers of Jesus, would we not walk out the same? Would we walk out followers of Jesus, but followers of Jesus that have been changed today, transform more and more into his likeness? And Lord, would you do that in us would you do that through us? Would you reign here this morning? Lord, for those of us who, who walked in and gratefully you had already opened our eyes to you, we had already given our lives to you. You're the Lord of our life. You've removed our sin as far as the east is from the west through your victory. Um, Lord, would you even transform us now? Change us more into your calling for us, more into your likeness. Lord, for those who walked in, they don't know where they're at with you. Uh, man, would they just be brutally honest with themselves and brutally honest with you? And Lord, just open their life up to you to do whatever you want in this place this morning.
to give their lives to you, be set free, be born again. And uh, Lord, would you maybe even direct them to one of us if there's some, some confusion there or just wanting uh, to, to have more, uh, to uh, maybe have their hearts that are stirring right now to come to you and, and just need to be pointed in the right direction, Lord. Would you give them the courage to do that? Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Would it, would it just radically change each of us? We don't want to play at church this morning. Uh, we want to meet with you and uh, never be able to recover because of what you're doing in our lives. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. So as we mentioned, the coming to the table, um, man, if you're not currently a follower of Jesus, um, this isn't gonna mean a lot to you. What I would encourage you to do is come to Jesus instead of come to the table, then, then come to the table. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, the warnings in scripture are not to just rush to the table, that sometimes this is a great opportunity to, to ask the Lord, like, search my heart, show me areas that I need to, to lay before you, um, and then come. We have wine and juice, so obey your conscience there. And then the way that we'll take it is, is come, take the elements, and then we'll remain standing and we'll take it together as family. So let's come, let's respond to him.